in real time, we can support people around the world and have and hold a space for them that they can talk or listen to each other and feel heard and understood and reduce the sense of isolation. I mean, that's a gift. That was Richard Beck, today's guest on the Group Dynamics Dispatch. Welcome to the Group Dynamics Dispatch. I'm Angelo Siliberti, and I'm excited to share with you conversations that explore what it means to live and grow within groups, from our early lives to our professional role as leaders. If you enjoy what you hear and would be interested in supporting this podcast, please consider liking and subscribing, as this really does help. Most importantly, Thank you for listening. Today's guest is Richard Beck. Richard is a social worker in private practice in New York City, where he treats individuals, couples, and groups, as well as consults with organizations that have experienced traumatic events. The current president of the IAGP, or the International Association for Group Psychotherapy and Group Processes, Richard spent 10 years chairing their task force for trauma and disaster management, where he helped coordinate support responses around the world. This task force has recently been active in forming and facilitating support groups for both Ukrainians and Russians. He is also a longtime member and fellow of the AGPA. In the aftermath of 9-11, Richard conducted over 1,500 hours of grief and trauma groups for first responders, survivors, and witnesses in New York City. His experience leading these groups while getting consultation to manage his own traumatic countertransference became the subject of the Alonzo award-winning paper, In the Belly of the Beast, co-authored with Dr. Bonnie Bukley. Given his extensive work with traumatized communities, Richard has been a recipient of the Social Responsibility Award. Most recently, he was invited by Nathan Grossman, the Swedish film director behind I Am Greta, to lead a group for Nathan's new film that explores the psychological and emotional impacts of climate science on climate scientists. We hope you enjoy this interview with Richard Beck. Well, good morning, Richard. Welcome. Hello, Angelo. Cheers. I'm having my coffee just as you're having it. That's right. And uh, I see your uh, beautiful cat walking around in the back. So I also want to welcome, is that a cubby? That's cubby. Yep. Everybody loves him. Who knows him? He's got his own Facebook page. So he's got followers from around the world. Well, I just met him and I already love him. So it'll be be nice to have him a part of the interview. He's a good guy. Yeah. Richard, you've made uh, leading groups at the front lines of traumatic events, a core part of your work. And I wanted to talk to you about what prompted you to do this kind of work. I talked about being the child of two Holocaust survivors. And how when I was a little boy, my mother would light the Sabbath candles every Friday night and weep for her sister who was killed in the gas chamber. So my father's parents were killed. My mother's uh, sister was killed. But the concept of bearing witness as a little boy was something which is just inbred in me from that experience. And I think that's a fundamental concept, Angelo, in any kind of group that we're conducting, we're privileged to conduct, to participate and bear witness to the lives of people who are coming to us and trusting us with help. But in particular, after a disaster, after a trauma, for people to just know they can go wherever they want to go, talk about whatever they want to talk about, 
And for us to respectfully listen to that experience is a gift. And that's something which I learned as a boy as part of my growing up. So you've really always been at the front lines from the very beginning. I made a joke. I had lunch with Molin Lesh. Dr. Molin Lesh is the immediate past president of AGPA. He's an amazing guy. Good, solid citizen. Molin told the story of when his mother was pregnant and he was born, the birth announcement. We are the Molins, the Leshes are pleased to send the birth announcement of their son, Dr. Molin Lesh, because they knew he was going to be a physician and a a wonderful physician and psychiatrist, even though I never became a physician. But the the therapy part and and the capacity to listen and be curious about people and lives and culture. That was always part of my being. And I'm thinking about how it's just also so woven kind of tragically into the what it means to be a child of Holocaust survivors, mm-hmm. to be a part of that lineage. It informs who we are in a sense. I gave a keynote in Thessaloniki, Greece for IAGP, the International Association for Group Psychotherapy and Group Processes. And I spoke and I showed pictures of my parents and I talked about their Holocaust experiences. Hide Katomi, he's a Japanese psychologist, gave a keynote. And his family survived Hiroshima, which was extraordinary. And he also is a trauma therapist, but working within the Japanese culture and the context of how he used his own childhood experience to really become the best psychologist as possible and also to be the best trauma therapist given the Japanese perspective on life. You were so active in the immediate response to 9-11. You've written about this and the 1,500 hours you spent leading trauma and grief groups for first responders. Right. And uh, I just wanted to talk to you about how you were impacted by that experience. Well, my friends were worried about me because I just was relentless, Angelo. And I don't know how I had the energy, but I was, I just knew to do what I did. And it didn't matter if I was dealing with somebody who was a maintenance man or an elevator operator who was in a building, or if I was working with a physician or or a psychologist or a nurse or the CEO of a billion dollar corporation that oversees the financial markets of this country, didn't matter. You know, you're just listening to good people process their experiences, of which there were many. And I got to know many good colleagues who are doing similar work here in this country. You know, like Suzanne Phillips writes, no no therapist should do this work alone. And sometimes I did, and sometimes I did it with colleagues. It was one of those experiences, but kind of similar in some ways to the right. COVID pandemic, where you as a therapist living in New York City right. had actively gone through this trauma at the same time, along with the other people in the city that you were working with. So I'm thinking about, you know, what it means to be a therapist managing your own traumatic responses as you're working with people that are suffering in a similar way. My colleague, Bonnie Bukele, and I wrote a well-received article about this in the belly of the beast, traumatic countertransference. I thought it was helpful for people in the pandemic times today. When you're affected by the same disaster, whether it be a a terror attack, or a disease that's affecting people around the world, 
and how countries are responding to the disease. That's a different issue. It affects us. And I thought the article that Bonnie and I wrote could be used as a template to help people around the country and around the world. Just understand our own reaction to working with something that we're treating people with at the same time. Yeah, one of the things I really enjoyed in that paper is how the two of you talk not only about the importance of self-care, but also the relationship that it has with culture. I describe self-care as unique as our own fingerprints. The last keynote I gave, I think I sent you a copy of it. It was for an organization, a mental health organization in the Ukraine before the war. And it was on self-care, culture and hope and suicide, actually. And it just talked about the meaning of self-care within the cultural context. If somebody, let's say, in Los Angeles might view self-care different than someone in Chicago. I mean, I don't know why I'm choosing Los Angeles and Chicago, but it could be Japan for Asia, where you don't really speak about yourself. It's not in the culture to speak about yourself, but it's important to take care of yourself. Somebody from Italy or somebody from Russia or somebody from France might view self-care differently. But it's something we really ethically, as clinicians, mental health professionals, need to think about in order to provide the best care for our, call them people, we're in, our, in our care, patients, clients, whatever the word that we're using. We really need to be there for ourselves in order to best be there for others, Angela. And it sounds like also really encourage an exploration of what that means in particular for that particular person. Right? Totally. I try to teach my students at Columbia to have a perspective of ignorance. The common phrase today is cultural humility. Great work. But I just took, I look at it in terms of ignorance. So in your culture, how do you take care of yourself? How is the idea of culture? And it's approaching things from a position of curiosity, but also of not knowing. Because I really don't know how different cultures view self-care, but I want to know. And I want people to talk about it. I think that this piece around culture and cultural humility segues into the IAGP because it seems like cross-cultural dialogue is really at the core of what IAGP is doing. So I wanted to see if you could talk about what IAGP is and how you got involved. It's a group therapy organization, similar to AGPA, similar to GASI, similar to FEPTO. It's the International Association for Group Psychotherapy and Group Processes. Uh, it was founded around the same time as AGPA was. IAGP was founded by two psychiatrists, Moreno and Folks, the founders of psychodrama and group analysis. I mean, now it's expanded to other theoretical orientations and included group processes so that organizational consultation and organizational groups are part of it. And, you know, because my parents were from Austria, like I said, they were Holocaust survivors. They were in Austria. They were there during Kristallnacht on November, in November of 38. My sisters were born in Switzerland and I was born in the States. Jersey City, New Jersey, uh, to be precise. So there's always been this international curiosity that IAGP kind of speaks to because groups are groups around the world, but groups are viewed so differently around the world as well. I mean, if you only go to AGPA, you think of AGP, the world of group from only an American perspective, I think. And AGPA has expanded internationally also, but IAGP 
starts with an international perspective. And we're having a hybrid Congress in Pescara, Italy. I'd like to invite your guests to register and attend. An amazing opportunity to really hear group from an international perspective from people all around the world. It's extraordinary. And so we're going to have it online and also in Pescara, Italy. And I'm going to include a link in the show notes to people for, in case people are interested in signing up. And I certainly hope people will. Awesome. That's very kind of you, Angelo. Thank you. Well, I'm happy to. Uh, the, the title I'm always giving a keynote. Great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we really, a lady from the Congo giving a keynote. We've got a guy from Japan giving a keynote, a guy from Italy giving a keynote. I don't want to miss anybody, but there's a couple more. I'll give you the link for the keynotes too. Great. The title of the conference is Groups for the World, right. Strength, Inspiration, and Transformation. Mona Rakawi from Egypt and Christina Martinez Taboida are the two co-chairs. She's in Spain. And we, we use the whole board to figure out what's the best title to come up with. And that's how we came up with it. What do you think that captures about what the hope or the vision for this conference is? People can really connect together. And there's hope for the future. That's really what it's about. It's about hope and about connecting. Are you going to come? Absolutely. Awesome. 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 The meat is good, but the seafood is extraordinary. Mm -hmm. It's the by the coast and the seafood there. Group therapists eat and we eat in groups, right? So we don't eat groups. We eat in groups. <laughs> Oh, and I, I think the best. I think the best groups happen around food. Personally, totally. You know, it's a family of origin. Exactly. Um, oh, what's the Yalom story about the two different rooms? One is heaven and one is hell, and they're both around the same pot of beautiful, delicious food. And in one group, in one room, people are starving with the with because they've got the long handles and they can't put the dip it in and feed themselves. And in the other room, it's heaven because they learn to feed each other. What a great story, right? Exactly. It's an interpersonal model capturing the essence of humanity. We feed right. each other. Uh, we've got people from Russia. We've got people from the Ukraine. You know, we've got people from countries who are at war with each other who are members of this organization. It's extraordinary and it's complicated because right. there's, there's so many layers of uh, intersectionality of politics and countries, not just theoretical orientations, which can be in, in battle with each other. Well, that's one of the things that strikes me about IEGP is that it really seems to be able to use group as a form of diplomacy. Well, we're learning. I'm meeting with the Secretary General's office. I, I didn't mention this to you. What's today? Sunday. This Thursday, I'm meeting with someone from the Secretary General's office, uh, having coffee around the corner from the U.N., to see how IAGP can partner with the UN, given the war in the Ukraine at the moment. There are other conflicts around the world and other disasters which are happening because we have experts in traumas and disasters located around the world in countries that speak the language, understand the culture, and can be of help. The chair of the Trauma Disaster Task Force for IAGP is a psychiatrist, an MD, PhD, who lives in Istanbul, Turkey, and he's presented at AGPA. Janer Bingol is his name. He's a great guy. His wife, Maria, is Ukrainian. They just had a little baby daughter. I mean, it's family. We're friends. But he, he's great. And he's organized like support groups online for Ukrainians during the war. And we've also organized support groups for Russians 
during the war. And they've needed this like oxygen because they can't talk about it in their countries in person. They can be arrested and put away in prison for 15 years. It's my understanding. So IAGP has been holding support spaces and groups for people with translators. Anna Lindhart, she's co-led the large group at AGPA. So she conducted the, the large groups for the Russians for IAGP. And the Ukrainians, we've used translators to help with the with the to support groups for the Ukrainians during the war. I mean, that's where we're talking about bearing witness, creating a space where people who are in real time, in real time, we can support people around the world and have and hold a space for them that they can talk or listen to each other and feel heard and understood and reduce the sense of isolation. I mean, that's a gift. Well, speaking of bearing witness, are there any experiences that you'd like to share with us so the listeners can hear and understand more about what some of those experiences are like for the Ukrainians and the Russians right now? Just for them to know that they have the space to be able to cry, to be able to listen, to be able to express their anger and sadness, and also joy and hope. That's the most important thing. That's really the most important thing. It's not about any one particular intervention. It's really about giving people the opportunity to have the space to do with whatever they want to do and to give them a modicum of control over that experience. And that's really powerful. And we use translators too. I don't know if you've ever used translators in groups that you've led. I haven't. Uh How do you think that impacts the experience? Well, I attended a an AGPA workshop that David Dumai and Seth Aronson co-led. And it really speaks to the experience that I've observed using translators because it adds a layer of complexity. The translator I'm using, because I'm running a support group every Thursday morning afternoon for Ukrainians, and they tend to be women because the guys are fighting. And it's the, not that the women aren't fighting, but the groups that I'm, I'm leading, it's all women. The translator is a psychiatrist living in the Ukraine. And I'm always processing what her experience is as well as the translator, because she's living in the country where the war is. And other members of the group, some are in the Ukraine, and you can hear the sirens in the background, Angela, or others have fled to other countries and are talking to each other from other countries like Turkey or England. But it's really quite uh, impactful, very emotional. Their cats come on the screens from around the world. I'm sitting here in New York City, out of the backyard, and you can hear birds. So these ladies from around the world in the Ukraine are hearing New York City birds chirping. And they're holding their cats and their cats are looking up and looking for the birds. <laughs> Makes the world so much smaller, doesn't it? Totally. I reference an Anna Freud quote. I'm not sure if you know it. So the quote from Anna Freud is people who've been traumatized don't need an intellectual interpretation. They need an authentic human experience. I'll give you an example. I led a group in South Africa, the University of Pretoria, and it was on trauma. And there were maybe 50 people in the group. And my type of interventions are similar to an analytic or group analytic model. I like to lead from behind. I'll open up a topic 
and people introduced themselves and people got to know each other. And then I just kind of let it unfold. Then there was a really fascinating interchange between a fellow, a couple to my right, who is a a gay man born in Germany, living in South Africa, talking about his experiences as a gay man living in South Africa right after apartheid. And next to me was this very dark-skinned Black woman talking about her experiences living next to me and what her experience was as a woman, as a Black woman living during apartheid, after apartheid, during Mandela's time. And the whole group just kind of observed the heated at times interaction, but they were able to express themselves and what their lives experiences were like, their subjective experiences. And then the group finished and they both came over to me and they just hugged me. And it was just like so meaningful. One of my, one of my fondest memories of leading groups from around the world. It was a gift to the observers. It was a gift to the two group members. And they could really articulate their emotional experiences in a place that was safe enough. And maybe they've said some things that they've never shared before to anyone in the world in that moment. It was amazing. But, but it speaks to the concept of creating a space that you know things are going to happen. I want people to feel heard and understood. You don't have to say more. You don't have to say less. Just be yourself. We don't want people to feel pressure to open up before they're ready. And I think that there are paradigms which push and probe for people to open up. And I don't think that creates a sense of safety, regardless of the modality, individual, couples, group. I use the, I like to eat clams on the half shell. But I tell my students, we're not clam shuckers. We're not there to open people up. People have to open up at their own pace, right? And I think groups are a way to really help people connect, appreciate differences, and talk them out so you don't have to act them out. So Richard, just thinking about all the time that you've spent working on trauma, both in this country and and really around the world, what would you share with us about one of the most important lessons that you've learned? The power of group cohesion. And I think especially with, with respect to trauma, but it's about creating a space where people feel a sense of community, a sense of togetherness, we-ness. And it's so powerful and it's so subtle, but it's so important to always have this, I teach my students, keep this on the side of your mind. Keep cohesion, especially in a trauma group who you might never see again. If you're only going to meet them once, you want to form cohesion and let the group do the work. I remember I was in Egypt. The first time I was giving a lecture in Egypt and the the talk I was giving on was about cohesion, but also about loneliness. So I walk in to the room where I'm going to be giving my my, uh, workshop. And I don't know if you've ever been to Cairo. Egypt is a very hierarchical cultural uh, country. So the chairs in the room were set up like in an auditorium facing the stage. I don't want to sit at the front of the stage. I want the comfort of creating a circle that there is no hierarchy, including the leader. My first intervention was I asked the people as they were coming in to help me move the chairs around because I started to do it by myself. So people are getting involved. They don't know me. I have my badge on, Richard Beck. 
And, and everybody's starting to move the chairs into a circle. And some people who were walking by joined that workshop only because they saw the chairs in a circle. And then as people were in the circle and beginning to schmooze a little, the photographer from the conference comes in and he asks me, because I'm the presenter, can he take pictures? So my next intervention was to turn to everybody in the room. Is it okay if the photographer takes pictures? So now the group is taking ownership of the decision. I'm not taking ownership. And they all say, sure. And these are friends and they're hugging each other. And the, the photographer comes in and they're loving this. and They're taking pictures and it's going on. And now I make another choice point because let's say the group is supposed to start at one o'clock, hypothetically, and it's now one o'clock and the photographer's in the room. I let this process continue. I let the process of the photographer take pictures with people in small subgroups to really create a bonding experience. And I let it go for maybe 10 more minutes consciously. And then the photographer looks at me and I look at him and he nods and he nods and he thanks me and he leaves. Everyone sits down and then the group has already been formed and we begin. And I acknowledge, you know, I decided to let it go on because it was really important that you all had the opportunity and the experience of connecting. And then I talked about loneliness and I talked a little bit and then I opened it up to them about loneliness and all different kinds of loneliness, especially loneliness after traumas, because one of the effects of trauma is just, you, it's the severance of affiliative bonds. That's what best of all van der Kolk writes about. So, but I gave these people and these people, the members of the audience, people who've known each other for 20, 30, 40 years, the opportunity to schmooze, to connect, to bond in a space that they felt comfortable. And I knew that I was creating that my mother used to knit. So it was like creating that tapestry of connection. And when I gave the connect, when I gave my keynote on um, the power of cohesion, I would show a, if I could move my computer, I'd show you a, a picture of my, one of the needle points I have in the hallway my mother did when, that I inherited after she passed. But it's about the connection and the tapestry that as group therapists or as, as leaders, as um, presidents of a local, of the AGPA, of a regional affiliate, as president of AGPA or of IGP, you want to knit the connections so that there's this bonding of people who want to be together. And it was so powerful. And really inviting. I mean, one of the things I'm just struck by is it's such a great metaphor. And even during throughout this interview, Richard, I've noticed right. you, um, it seems like you knit a lot through the stories that you tell. You bring, you know, you've brought in the names of different people. And so I feel like even throughout this conversation, you've really knitted people into the engagement between the two of us. So alongside knitting, you also talk about the importance of being nimble as a group leader. Will you say more about that? I learned the concept of nimbleness from Bonnie Bugley. She said group therapists have to be nimble, resilient, resourceful, not rigid. So I asked everybody on my exec, do you know what nimble means? Because we as, a, as leaders have to be nimble. And nobody knew what the word nimble meant. So Katerina Mella, who's an MD, PhD from Greece, she looks it up and she tells me what nimble means in Greek. Azme Abdel Fata is a psychiatrist from Egypt. She tells me in Arabic what, how you would define nimble. Maite P is a psychologist from Spain. She's telling me in Spanish how nimble, what, how do you say nimble? 
Maria van Noort is from Amsterdam. And in Dutch, how do you say nimble and what nimble means? Heloisa Flori from Brazil. In Portuguese, how nimble, she's the treasurer, how, how you would describe nimble. So now we've got six different languages, six different cultures. And the concept of nimbleness, there are layers to this, Angelo. Well, it sounds so rich. Right? So you've got to be nimble even with nimbleness. It's extraordinary. I mean, it's also exhausting, but it's extraordinary. <laughs> Cheers. I'm having some more coffee. Cheers. Salud. Right? Salud. We'd love to have you talk about the work you recently did with Nathan Grossman on his uh, film project regarding climate change and trauma in the climatology field. This is going to be extraordinary when the documentary comes out. Nathan Grossman is a Swedish filmmaker. He was 29 years old when he filmed I Am Greta, just to put some perspective on his age. This is a film, the documentary about Greta Thunberg, the Swedish climate activists. And the concept was to make a follow-up documentary on the impact of climate change on the climate scientists. And they reached out to me in my role as president of IAGP, describing their thought of putting together a group of, of seven climate scientists leading a group. If I knew anybody who might be interested in leading this group who had experience with trauma, and I said, I do this stuff. So then I met with Nathan, and they met with group therapists from around the world, and they chose me. And I'm honored and blessed to have been chosen to do this. They put together, it's like a trauma group, because the, as the group leader, I didn't select the group, Angelo. Nathan and his team, Malin Olofsson from Sweden, is his executive producer. She was the executive producer of I Am Greta, the finest woman from Sweden. The three of them are there in charge of this project. We discussed the concept of marathon filming of the scientists. They sent me the bios of the seven scientists. And these are like high-level people. And we filmed it in February in New Jersey. What I've come to learn is to ask people for help. Marsha Honig is a board member of IAGP. She chairs the transcultural section. She's an art therapist and a drama therapist. She's originally from Rio, living in Tel Aviv. And she came up with an idea for art therapy that the Swedish film crew really liked. And I included that very powerful. I invited them to draw their biggest fears for the world. And I did that in a group. It was extraordinary. And then I hope that when they edit it, they'll include that in the documentary. And you could see concretely the way in which all the scientists managed to struggle to put their feelings into art. And they drew their biggest fears of humanity in the world. Really powerful stuff. What an exceptional opportunity. I can't wait for it to be out. It really is. I mean, I get chills as we're talking about it. I mean, these are such frightening realities. And just to think about the profound impact it must have for them in particular, just being so immersed in the data Uh, But it's also really inspiring to hear about the way group is being used in these new and creative ways with climate change. It's better than the Bob Newhart show. 
<laughs> which is a lot of, I mean, it's, it's a certain generational reference, but a lot of people think that's their reference for group therapy. People growing up in this generation might not know that TV show, especially from around the world. But for those of a certain age, they will think, I know that show. Mm -hmm. Right. And you're providing a different example. Totally. We've got to be nimble and adaptive. How do you define nimble again? Uh, <laughs> I need another cup of coffee. Right? Yeah. Richard, I just want to thank you so much for taking the time to do this interview. And I'm very excited to uh, see you in Pescara. I look forward to it, Angelo. Angelo. 